Good morning. Would you open your Bibles now to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts as we look today at a vision of missions, uh, the start of the missionary era of the new covenant, people of God. And we're actually going to begin reading in chapter 12, verse 24, and read through chapter 13, verse 12. As we're reading this, I want you to give thought to three things that we will be looking at together. The first is the church at Antioch, the first missionary base upon which missionaries were sent. Two, the work of the Holy Spirit as he shows the church who to send and uh, how he works in the whole engagement of missions. And finally, the nature and task of missions as we get a picture of the first mission encounter in Cyprus. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the word of God increased and multiplied. By the way, word of God is Luke's summary of what we mean by the gospel, the gospel of Christ and him crucified, resurrected, ascended. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manine, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching 
of the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to this text today, we pray that as we read it, your Holy Spirit will read our hearts and bring to bear upon us the truth that we may be changed, that we may be transformed more and more by degree and degree into the image of Christ by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we spend this time together under the preaching of your word, you would do that work in us that only you can do that would bring you glory and be for the good of your church. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Luke has gone to great pains to show us the living nature of the gospel. The gospel is a living thing. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel itself, the message itself, is power. It's not a message about power. Hearing the gospel is powerful. And the gospel has the power to create what it calls for. Through the preaching of the gospel and the application of that gospel by the Holy Spirit, God changes us. He opens our eyes to see the truth. And he opens our eyes to see our alienation from him, our estrangement from him, our sinfulness, and our need of a Savior. And he calls us to himself through this gospel. And the, the book of Acts is all about this gospel running like a lion across Palestine and Syria and now across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, the first actual missionary breakthrough for the church. So Luke depicts the gospel as growing and multiplying under its own power. Luke has been outlining how the gospel has been flowing and progressing according to the pattern and command that Jesus laid down in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Let's go through that quickly by way of uh, memory. There he directed the apostles to go first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 6, we saw the gospel spreading like lightning throughout Jerusalem, and it increased rapidly. That was the first stage. Um, then in Acts 7 and 8, we saw the gospel begin breaking through different human cultures and the disciples' expectations. First, through the deacon evangelist Stephen, more by his theology and his death, and then through Philip by his mission to Samaria, we saw the gospel break out of Jerusalem into its first new cultures. That is the culture of the Samaritans as well as the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapters 10 through 12, through the conversion of Cornelius and that great new uh, church in Antioch, um, we see the gospel uh, show its power not only to enter any and every culture and class, but also to unite Christians with a bond deeper than any human distinction. There is a bond 
by the way, between people who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. There is a, a connectedness, a sense of oneness that we all receive as we are in union with Christ and in union with one another. For the first time, the world was seeing a religion that truly and supernaturally was transcultural. To become a Christian, a Greek does not have to become a Jew, a plebeian does not have to become a patrician, or vice versa. For Christianity is not the product of national and cultural consciousness, rather it is the shaper of any kind of consciousness at all. Acts chapter 7 through 12 then was the second stage in which the gospel spread across all cultures and thus we read at the end of the period but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Now the stage is being set for the final stage which is the stage we are now in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. At that, all the time in action has been limited to the Palestinian and Syrian mainland. Nobody has yet caught the vision of taking the good news of the gospel to the nations overseas. The gospel has spread across cultures, but now it's about to explode geologically, or geographically, excuse me, not geologically, geographically. It has become clear that the gospel has the power to transform anyone, and so the stage is set for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And it begins with the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had taken an offering to Jerusalem, and now they have returned with John Mark. And so we begin to see, first of all, the church at Antioch becomes the launching base for the first worldwide mission tour. Antioch is the first missionary sending church in Christian history. This body became the first missionary sending body, but what led them to do this? Notice the role of three things as you look at this church at Antioch with me that Luke gives us here. First, the efforts in Samaria and Antioch were not the result of strategic planning by the Jerusalem church. In both cases, Christians fleeing persecution simply shared their faith through friendship with uh, people around them in their new cities, and uh, the ch church of Antioch uh, received insight to begin worldwide missionary projects. Let's look at the leadership makeup of this church because this will give us a hint of what was going on. The church at Antioch had a council of leaders, something like a board of elders, that were called prophets and teachers. Luke doesn't tell us all uh, were prophet teachers or if some or were one and some were the other, nor does he define either one here. What is remarkable is the diverse range of human stations from which these men are drawn. Think of Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon was called Niger, which means the black, almost certainly indicating that he was black African. Lucian was from Cyrene, 
which is in North Africa. He may have been black. He may not have because most people of North Africa at this time were not. He was probably one of the original Cyrenian evangelists who came to Antioch in the first place and preached the gospel which caused the church to be established there. He was, uh, then there was Manian, who was either a foster brother or relative of Herod Antipas, and thus was of royal and upper class status. And then there was Saul, who was a Jew and essentially an academic, a professor. The leadership of the church reflected the multi-class and cultural membership of the church. That is what my heart's desire cries out for even here and now in Las Vegas at Spring Meadows. Experience tells us that such a group would have not seen eye to eye on every issue. Consider how Peter, a Jew who had very little sophistication, he was a fisherman, you know. Nothing wrong with being a fisherman. It's a great calling. But you look at Paul, a Jew with an amazing education and sophistication and background, they had conflicts due to differences uh, in background, yet the leaders in such a diverse body would have continually cross-pollinated each other and uh, so that they would have been far more aware of the needs and opportunities of the whole Mediterranean world. Uh, far more than any... Uh, homogenous leadership team. In general, a group of very different people who can agree on common goals is a far more creative body than one made up of similar people. The concept of strategic missions was born in such a group, and it makes sense. Now let's look at their routines, what they did. Luke indicates that the Antioch church did not come to the concept of strategic missions as a result of their seeking it directly. They didn't say on Tuesday night, we're going to meet wherever we meet, and we're going to have a meeting about strategic missions, and we're going to consider who to send and where to send them. That is not how it happened. Not at all. Verse 2 says, Rather, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the most natural reading of these words is that they were not in a special season of prayer, nor were they specifically and deliberately planning for missions. Rather, they were going about the routine work of worship and seeking God's presence, and the whole church was praying along with the leaders, so it is probable that uh, they were all together when they did this. The first thing that I really want to call your attention to is that missions is the result of worship and fasting and praying. Worship generates missions. What am I saying by that? Why is that true? Why does worship generate missions? Worship, as we know, from the best definition I know of, is seeing what God is worth. You see something of his nature. He reveals himself through scripture. He, he reveals himself through the media of creation. He reveals himself through the, the light of conscience in man. But God reveals himself most prominently through his son, Jesus Christ. And so worship is seeing what God is worth 
And as a result of being moved by seeing what God is worth, it is giving back to him what he is worth. Worship is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory activity where the Holy Spirit moves us. He reveals the nature of God to us. And as a result, it moves us to give back to him. And so when we understand the gospel and the gospel melts our hearts, you see the gospel isn't just a message we believe to enter into the door of Christian living. The gospel is the door, but it's also the pathway we walk. And as we walk and understand more deeply what it costs God to save us. He gave up his son. He sent his son. What Christ accomplished on our behalf, what he was willing to suffer and go through, he loved us and he gave himself for us. Then that moves you if you truly see it. It moves the heart and you begin to want what you have experienced for other people because it's so liberating. It's so freeing. It's so cleansing. It's so powerful. And you want other people to know the good news. And so you begin to share the good news. And here, worship generated the first missionary movement. I don't know if any of you have ever considered the call to be a missionary. I know I was scared to death <clears throat> as a young lad going to church that God was going to call me to missions. My wife said she was even more frightened than I was. She said the only thing worse than being a missionary was to be a pastor's wife. <laughs> 41 years almost she's been a pastor's wife. And she's lived through it. Hadn't been easy. But missions, missions. You know, I used to, uh, I used to notice missionaries when they come visit the church I grew up in. And I always sort of remarked to my two brothers, you know, they're a little bit weird. They're a little bit strange. They just didn't seem, they seemed to be out of sync with, you know, middle American culture. And they were out of sync with middle America, but they just seemed a little different. And they are a little different because of the call of God upon the life. But what a glorious calling it is. Missionaries who I used to think were weird when I was young have now become my heroes as I have grown. I planted two churches in North America. That's called North American mission work, but I didn't cross a, well, I crossed a culture, but not a language group to get here. I mean, you move from Tennessee to Las Vegas, that's a culture clash. We're all singing in Rocky Top and Hee Haw. Uh, and then we come out here and it's Viva Las Vegas, right? I'm making fun of myself. All right. And everybody else here that's from Tennessee. Experience tells us in this routine that the most natural reading was is they were not in a special session of prayer, but rather God had moved them. What do we learn from this? Surely we can infer from that special season of prayer that deliberate uh, planning is wrong. That's not what we were to learn. Rather, what we learn is that what would seem like special prayer for us was clearly routine for the Antiochian church. Periods of intense worship and fasting, seeking God's presence, was normal for them. And it shows us the kind of church that God reveals himself to. The Holy Spirit, Luke, leaves us a little in the dark as 
exactly how the Holy Spirit showed the church that he wanted Paul and Barnabas to become missionaries. He didn't zap anybody or anything like that. And it's very frustrating, of course. Did God send a prophecy through the member of the church? It could have been. Was it an idea that came to some of them while they prayed after deliberation, decided the Holy Spirit was leading them to do this as a body? The Holy Spirit spoke to the church in both ways. The fact that Luke leaves us in the dark means that it's not necessary for us to know the specific method. In fact, by omitting the specific, he may be better teaching us that God will lead his church if we are seeking him. And it's also important to notice that the Holy Spirit does not give a bunch of details. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work, to which I have called them. It reminds me of the call of Abraham, whom God called uh, while he was outside of the land and commit, uh, called Abraham to himself, going, not knowing where he was going. Same thing here. The message does not indicate exactly what countries to go to or what methods to use. The means that it was only shown to the church to send two missionaries out but not to tell them exactly what to do takes a sense of real adventure to follow the Holy Spirit's calling. He does not ever show us the whole map, but he takes you one step at a time. That's how the Holy Spirit leads. I think for me, if the Holy Spirit had shown me all at once what I would have done uh, responding to the call to ministry, I would have run the other way as fast as I could. But he takes us one step at a time and shows us. Finally, in this section, notice that prayer was not only the cause of the word of the Lord, but it was also the result. Possibly during the meeting, one or more people received the insight that Saul and Barnabas should be sent to plant a new church in other countries to cross the Mediterranean. In response to this insight, we see in verse 3, we see they again fasted and prayed some more. Why did they do this? They did so until they placed their hands on them. And the laying on of hands is always a way of identifying with someone, saying, we are with you, we are part of you, we are in agreement with you. What this meant was the whole church was confirming and agreeing that the Holy Spirit had truly called these two men to go on a mission. So in response to the Spirit's leading, some members of uh, the whole group prayed and confirmed this call, which tells me a lot about how God calls people into various forms of ministry. There is both what is called an internal call and an external call. The internal call is when God begins to show an individual that he is calling them to a special task. It may be missions, it may be uh, a call to preach, it may be a call to be a teacher, it could be uh, a plethora of things. But how does God do it? First, he moves upon the individual, and you get this sense that maybe, you know, I, somebody asked me one time, how did I get called to preach? And I said, I don't remember much about it other than I started wanting to do it. <laughs> I just started having a desire to do it, and I'd never had that desire before, and it scared me a little bit. It scared me a lot. 
And I never envisioned myself being that way, but all of a sudden I could begin to see that God might use me in that way. But that's not enough. It isn't enough for you to have a sense of internal calling. There has to be the external call. That is, the church sees in you what is part of the nature of being called. They see that you have the gifts. They see that you have the calling. And they confirm, they, as it were, lay their hands upon you and send you. And this stops us from two very deadly things in the church. It stops us from individualism and it stops us from institutionalism. Both of those can kill ministry. John Stott has a great way of summarizing what happened in Antioch. He said, In our anxiety to do justice to the Holy Spirit's initiative, we should not depict the church's role as having been entirely passive. The balance will be a healthy corrective to the opposite extremes. The first is a tendency toward individualism by which a Christian claims direct personal guidance by the Spirit without reference to the church. The second is the tendency toward institutionalism by which all decision-making is done by the church without reference to the Spirit. Personal choice is safe and healthy only in relation to the Spirit and the church. Thus we learn that on the one hand we are not to be self-accredited saying God has told me this before we get confirmation from other Christians. I was all of my Christian life, I have been leery of anyone coming to me telling me, God told me to tell you this. How do I know God told them to tell me this? Most of the time when they were telling me what God told them to tell me, I felt like I was being manipulated. I really seriously did. And so maybe God did. I'm not saying that that's not at all possible ever. But I'm saying that there has to be checks and balances. Uh, so we learn that on the one hand, we're not to be self-accredited, saying God told me this before we get confirmation from other Christians. On the other hand, we're not to turn the church into a bureaucracy where decisions are made through mechanical processes only. We must seek to hear the Holy Spirit in community together. Then we must seek, seek confirmation of what we have heard in the community together. And this way we, we have a balance and avoid individualism and institutionalism. I've seen churches kill ministry through red tape. We don't want to do that. On the other hand, we don't want everybody in the world coming and saying, God told me, get out of my way, give me something to do. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful process of checks and balances that God has provided for us. So in verse 2, we see that the leaders, and probably the people, prayed. They sought God intensely. They were open to God's leading at such times. And the leaders did not simply hold meetings together. They worshipped together. And that guards against institutionalism. You know, what we need in the church today, and the last eight months should show us what we need more than anything else, is revival. The sense of spiritual renewal that comes when God intensifies the operations of the Holy Spirit among his people. 
where He charges the church with spiritual power, where He pours out upon the church an extra measure of His Spirit that produces repentance in the people of God and a heart for the broken and the lost and the lame and the least and the last that causes us to get out of ourselves and minister to others. Worship delivers us from institutionalism, but we see the leaders prayed some more in response to God's leading and finally reached consensus that this was the right thing to do. So that guarded against individualism because the church together made the decision. Now, with that said, let's look at the first mission. We know that uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out, beginning in verse 4, down to Seleucia. They went down the Orontes River uh, from Antioch to Seleucia, which is a port town on um, the Mediterranean. And from there they sailed westward to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. Paul always went to the synagogues first, and then they had John Mark with them to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which is on the western side, not the eastern side of the island, probably 80 miles or more, and uh, they were as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barabbas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But something happened when this happened. Paul became very forceful with this guy named Elimus, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Yahweh, which means son of salvation. He was anything but, but that was his name. And Sergius Paulus was a very influential, powerful man on the island of Cyprus at this point. He was appointed by Rome, and he had cachet, he had power, he had position, he was somebody really significant. And so Elimus was a magician, a sorcerer, if you will, and he opposed them, seeking to turn away the proconsul from the faith. Paul's condemnation of him was very severe. He plays on Elimus's proper name, Bar-Jesus, and says, you're not a, a, a son of salvation, you are a child of the devil. First recorded words of the missionary Paul, you are a child of the devil, not of salvation. And judgment fell. He pronounced judgment, miraculous judgment, was that he was struck blind. Luke uses two words, mist and darkness, that at that time were medical terms for the loss of sight. Paul explains that the blindness is for a time. There's mercy in this judgment. Everywhere there's judgment in the Bible, there's always attending with judgment mercy, which is an opportunity to repent. Paul's forcefulness seemed linked to the public nature of Elimus's opposition to the gospel and the openness of the proconsul Sergius Paulus to the gospel. Paul discerned the official was on the fence, therefore he acted proactively and decisively. 
The judgment sign is appropriate. It is no, more, no mere stroke of vengeance by God or Paul. It's appropriate in two ways. First, it had instructive and revelational value. It was a perfect illustration that if we forfeit and deny the light, that is the truth, that we do have, we will become spiritually blind and confused. Light given, responded to, causes more light to come. Light given and rejected or spurned causes darkness to come. Darkness here means primarily ignorance of God, who He is, of uh, what the truth is, and so there's a, a, a loss of light and a falling into deception and darkness. But this darkness was only for a time. Paul remembered vividly what it meant himself to be struck blind by God as a sign to show him his own spiritual blindness. Let me say something about that. When we are born into this world, we are born fallen. We receive from Adam, our ultimate father, in a human father, we receive the sinful nature, as it were, what the Bible calls the flesh, the, the craving in our heart, the appetites in our life to do things that are outside of the boundaries and law of God. We are born with a lawless heart. Nobody's born physically, spiritually, having sight. There has to be a time when God heals our spiritual blindness. Remember Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, he meets him at night, and uh, you know Nicodemus sort of throws him a, a, a couple of props. He says, good teacher, uh, what must I do to, not what must I do to inherit the eternal life? That's another guy. But he greets him as an equal sort of teacher, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, what? Except you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. People are spiritually blind. Ultimately, the healing of that blindness through the light of the truth of the gospel causes us to begin to see the truth. Right now, to some of you, and I say this with all due respect, because I've been there, I was there, that all this stuff to do with Jesus and the cross and His fulfilling all righteousness for us means nothing to you if you can't see it. See it in the sense of perceive it, understand it, get it. It becomes part of you. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, unless He does, as it were, heart surgery on you, unless He opens your blinded eyes to see the truth, and the God of this world has blinded us. Satan himself, through deception, has blinded us to the light of the truth of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so being healed of spiritual blindness is really what conversion is. And so Paul himself had experienced that. But this judgment had possible redemptive value. 
The blindness was temporary, not permanent, and if Elimus got the point as Paul did, it could be a way for him to find God. What if you know you're spiritually blind? What if you sense that there's this big wall, this big barrier, this darkness between you and God? What do you do about it? can't do anything about it except call out and say, Lord, heal my spiritual blindness, please. Open my eyes so that I might behold the truth. Show me that you're real. Show me who you are. That's an appropriate prayer. And so, in the same way Paul challenged the enemies of Christ, we must be willing to speak out clearly, especially when there's public opposition to the gospel that is spiritually harming a potentially open person. But despite the apparent sharpness of the rebuke, we should also follow Paul's pattern of being appropriate in our opposition. In other words, we should be opposing people only in order to redeem them. Never give up on anybody. No matter what they may say back to you, never give up on anybody. You, God may use you. He may use the words you say. He may use your disposition and demeanor toward others. He may use sharp words to wake people up. And that's part of the gospel in order to redeem them. Because our Father is a sending Father. He sent His Son into the world to redeem us. We are sent out after we are redeemed to bring the gospel to people just like us who are walking in darkness. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and we have fellowship with His Son. But if we walk in darkness, we're alienated from God. Alienated. And we need to be reconciled by coming to Christ and not trying to save ourselves by changing, but rather coming as we are saying, Lord, save me, change me, deliver me. Those words have power before God. He cannot but respond to that from a genuine heart. Now, one last thing before we're done. And that is, um, I, I don't know if you caught it, but Saul of Tarsus in this passage is called Paul. Here's the big change, Paul the Apostle. And why is he called Paul? Well, in the middle of the story, Paul is called Paul for the first time. Before this, he had been called Saul, which is his Hebrew name. Now he is called Paul, which is a Roman name. This is probably because the chapter marks the beginning of the missionary outreach to the Gentiles. Prior to the growth of the church, he'd been under the oversight of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Hence, Saul was called by his Hebrew name. Now he's going to the Gentiles, so he, his name assumes a Gentile form. Yet there's a change that even goes beyond that. In the earlier part of the story, as names are listed, it's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. By the time we end this story and we move on through chapter 13, Paul becomes the first name mission, mentioned, which means that uh, 
Barnabas was initially the leader. He'd been in the faith longer. He actually recruited Saul, who became Paul. But the time came as God worked sovereignly in both of their lives that Paul became the natural leader of this missionary team. I'll tell you what, I am overwhelmed and impressed by Barnabas's humility. Paul had been in the background, though, for a long time. Think about this. He seems to have faded from sight at least to the eyes of the people in Jerusalem. Most had forgotten all about him. Paul spent three obscure years in Arabia, had been perhaps seven years in Asia Minor at Tarsus, and now had spent two more years at Antioch. Twelve years Paul was getting on. Twelve years he had been in preparation. Paul was getting on to middle age at this point, and he really hadn't been used much by God, certainly not in doing any great pioneer work among the Gentiles, which God, at his conversion, told him he would do. You know, God does that. Look at Moses. You know, Moses was, was called by God at age 40 to deliver his people spent 40 years on the backside of the wilderness in Nowhereville, and then came back and spent 40 years leading the people out. man started his ministry at 80. <laughs> Look at David. When God came to him and announced, anointed him through Samuel, that he was going to be the king, it took a long time for David to actually occupy the throne. He was running for, from Saul to save his life for a, a significant period of time. God has ways to prepare us. He needs to sift us as wheat. If we're going to be used greatly of Him, He will crush us. He will hurt us deeply. He will cause us to rely upon Him and not our gift mix and our gift package. Suffering especially comes to the pastor or the teacher or the missionary. Why? Because it's so easy to try to rely on your own unique set of gifts and talents rather than relying upon the Spirit of God and the gospel which has the power to produce supernatural results. All the rest of it just produces natural results. And so God has to whip us into shape, so to speak. He has to break us. He has to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can become useful for Him. Not a great advertisement to be a missionary or a pastor, huh? But it's true. It's the truth. And you ought to thank God for it. You ought to thank God that he puts people like that through it. Now, if you're sensing that God is setting you apart for something for him... You might be 30, you might be 40, 50, 60 years of age. If you are, don't cut your years of preparation short. If you have been given such years, cherish them, use them wisely. Christians emphasize missions, and missions are important. Don't give up on missions, but don't give up on preparations for other Christian work either. The important thing is to keep close accounts with God, study the Bible, Learn to live in the power of the gospel and serve everyone as widely and as well as you can. And it may be in years to come you will look back on this very time and say, God was working 
so deeply in me. I could tell you story after story where God was working. And uh, I was basically sitting in the corner of my room in a fetal position, sucking my thumb, so to speak. God was working and working and working. And that is what we take from this passage today. Missions are excited. And this is the beginning of the missionary era that is still forging ahead today. Maybe, just maybe, God is preparing, I know you're going to hate this, some of you for missions that you've been uniquely gifted and called and prepared to serve Him in that regard. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. It is the truth. And truth is reality. And sometimes reality bites it's hard to hear. It's not comfortable, but it's truth, which is why we believe Christianity, because it's true. And we thank you that the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed because he saw what occurred, that the, the miraculous blinding of this man authenticated the reality of Paul as a preacher of truth, that this man was converted. And we pray that you would use this word in us today to accomplish great things for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.